Be Christ's Church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke Podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. He's good, isn't he? Would you pray with me? God, thank you. In everything, for everything. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that as we are seeing in the book of Acts that he's before us and he's behind us. God, for those who are in Christ Jesus by faith, there is otherworldly power available, unshakable resolve and confidence in the face of adversity and hardship, cancer, persecution depression, despair. God, this world is tough, but you rule over all. And Lord, we're, we're seeing that in the book of Acts, that, that King Jesus is risen, he's ascended, and he is reigning in the hearts of his people. God, protecting and empowering their witness. Lord, I pray today that... Um, from Acts chapter 5, you would, you would help us uh, to step into what you're doing in your world. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. We've got a lot of ground to cover today. We're going to go all the way through verse 42. I'm going to read this passage in three sections and make three points as we go I want to share with you about the hallmarks of faithful gospel ministry today. The hallmarks of faithful gospel ministry. And I don't mean that just individually, I mean it corporately. So what does it look like for a church to be characterized by faithful gospel ministry? I think that's probably an important question for us to consider and to answer. And as we step back into chapter 5, we remember last week, right, that there was internal opposition that came as Satan filled Ananias' heart and um, they conspired to deceive the church and, and God took care of that internal opposition and now we step back into a world of external opposition. We'll see that as the church maintains faithful gospel ministry that they're going to face uh, persecution, opposition, threats. And, and what we're going to find in this passage is that persecution doesn't stop us from proclaiming the gospel. So we're going to see three, three characteristics of faithful gospel ministry. First, we'll see the gospel progress, then we'll see some persecution, and then we'll see some praise and some proclamation. So if you would hear with me the word of the Lord, uh, we'll consider first verses 12 through 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together. There it is again. 
Luke keeps telling us the church was together, they were together, they were together. They were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. First thing I want us to see from this, these several verses is to, to engage in faithful gospel ministry, to be a people of God on mission with God faithfully. We've got to meet needs to provide a platform for the progress of the gospel. We've got to meet needs to provide a platform for the progress of the gospel. In, in these verses, we see that God is at work regularly, verse 12, among the people of Jerusalem through the apostles. The, the phrase, by the hands of the apostles, doesn't mean that the apostles were always physically, literally laying their hands on people in order for them to be healed. It's just a phrase, an expression that communicates power, right? So, so God's power is at work through the apostles. And we're seeing this in signs and in wonders. It, it means that the ascended Jesus that we saw preaching the kingdom of God and healing people in the Gospels is now at work by the indwelling Holy Spirit in His apostles to bring healing to still more. Now we've got to understand that the role of the apostles is a unique role. They were eyewitnesses to the resurrected and ascended Jesus who worked signs and wonders through them for the purpose of authenticating their authority and the message that they proclaimed. So you say, well, Pastor Daniel, why aren't you walking around Roanoke performing signs and wonders because I'm not an apostle. I, I can't do that. Um, the Word of God has now been given. It's been given authoritatively, and its power to save people has been proven as wicked sinners turn to Christ, and He changes their life, and He gathers a people. You are now the testimony to the apostolic authority, what He's doing inside your life. So I'm not walking around doing signs and wonders, right? The miracles certified for the Jews in Jerusalem, that it was the apostles, not the temple leaders, who were God's servants. But we've got to be careful. We can read these verses and get really excited about signs and wonders and miss the main point that's in verse 14. Multitudes, more than ever before, and we've already seen thousands come to saving faith in Christ in the first four chapters of Acts, right? But multitudes, more than ever before, of men and women are being added to the Lord as believers. Believers in what? In signs and wonders? No. Because to believe in a sign and wonder doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't make you a believer. In fact, Jesus says in Mark, you believed the sign, but you didn't believe in the Savior. And that counts for nothing. So these were believers in Christ. So the signs and wonders authenticate the message and people are believing in the message and they're receiving Jesus as their king and following him. It is the word of God that works in the hearts of people. Peterson says this, it is the word that saves as people come to believe and put their trust in God as its source and Christ as its content. 
And, and I would add that it is also the love and the concern and the holiness of God's people on mission together that also points to Jesus. Did you see that in verse 12? Again, Luke tells us they were all together. Marita says this, they, they shared life together. They cared for people together. We were meant to be together in this mission following our King. And while we're not walking out and people are trying to get under our shadow because a miracle might happen, we provide the platform through being good neighbors to be able to share the gospel. Now verse 13 is a bit unclear. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Well, who in the world are the rest and the them and the them? If you took English grammar and learned about antecedent problems, we have an antecedent problem. It's, it's not clear what's going on in verse 13. But I think New Testament scholar Scott Kellum has it right. Who are the rest? The rest is the church, except for the apostles. All right? So the apostles are working, and the, the rest of them didn't dare join the apostles. In other words, the church knew who the apostles were and they knew that they weren't apostles. And they weren't walking around trying to become apostles. They understood that God had given them a special role and set them apart for, with a special authority for this season in the life of the church. So the church respected the unique role of the apostles and they didn't encroach on that. Nevertheless, even though the church respected the apostles... The people of Jerusalem held them, who? The entire church in high esteem. You tracking with that logic there in verse 13? All right, so the church didn't try to pretend to be an apostle, but as the church respected apostolic authority, the whole community recognized there's something special about these people. And the result, what is the result of, of a church that submits to apostolic authority, which is now encoded in the Word of God, and is together, the people are admiring and respecting that. That they're living this out. That they're actually taking their faith seriously. And the result is that multitudes are saved because the church is together under the apostles and actively reaching the sick and the oppressed. Don't miss that part. The church keeps on bringing people, those on cots and mats, the bedding of the frail and the sick to be healed, and they also bring those afflicted with unclean spirits. The, the church, this, this hit me this week, the church did not run away from sickness, they ran into it. Think about our context for a moment. The church did not run away from sickness, they ran into it. They did not see disease and dirt and depression and destitution or demonic oppression as things to avoid, but as opportunities to reach the very people that Jesus saves. In the second century in Rome, a plague went through the Roman Empire, killing 60 to 80 million people. And initially, the people of Rome said it's because of those crazy Christians worshiping their crazy risen Savior. But everybody ran away from the plague, except for the Christians. As people were sick and dying, they ran to them. And they gave them food and water 
and comfort, care, and many of them died doing so. Why did they do it? Because they believed, as Paul says, to live as Christ and to die is great gain. And there was revival in the empire because Christians did what no one else could do because they did not fear to die. The church went to broken people because Jesus heals broken people. He came to heal those who understand that they are sick. The physical and emotional and spiritual condition of those that Jesus saves in this passage is a picture of those that God saves. Who does God save? He doesn't save people who think that they don't need a doctor. He comes to save people who recognize that apart from God they can do nothing. He saves those who are undone and hopeless and helpless apart from Christ. As Jesus says in Matthew 5.13, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what, what is the takeaway for us, church? None of us are super apostles walking around working signs and wonders. But we still need to find ways to get the gospel to broken people. It's why we're here. To reach the sick and the poor and the oppressed and the hurting, it's, it's why we do wind shape. It's why we do vacation Bible school. It's why we take students to camp and encourage them to bring friends. It is why we serve meals to teachers and staff at nearby schools. It's why I pray more of us will seriously consider adoption and fostering. It's why I pray that God would make a way for thousands of kids in the valley to have access to a Christian education. Not to just get a little bit of Jesus on Sunday and Wednesday, but to get Jesus every day of the week. Because the world is trying to form the opinions and the worldview of our kids contra Christ every single day of their life for six to eight hours a day. And the church gets two or three. why we must stop. We must not stop thinking of the lost and their great need for Jesus. The salvation of the poor in spirit is the goal of being a good neighbor. It's the goal of being a good co-worker. Don't be a good co-worker just so you can get a promotion and everybody likes you. Be a good co-worker so you get an opportunity to share who Jesus is. It's the goal of being a nice customer at Kroger. They're having a bad day too. It wasn't their fault that that product wasn't on aisle 13. It's the goal of being a good tipper. Hey, when you go to a restaurant, if you can't afford to tip well, then you can't afford to go to the restaurant. When you get served a meal, you're the server. You're there to serve them. They're hurting. They're tired, they're worn out. You forgot to fill up my Dr. Pepper. Come on. Bless them. And if you can't bless them, don't go eat. Eat, eat less frequently. Shock them by what you do in the way of blessing them. Pray for them. Ask, hey, what's going on in your life? Is there something that I can pray for you about? What? And they might think you're crazy. And then they show up and they see that tip and they're like, man. There's something about those people. You know, waiters and waitresses, pre-pandemic, they, hate, they hated Sunday. Because all the Christians came out to eat and they left tracks for tips and a couple of bucks. God help us. 
God help us. Who does God save? The poor, the sick, the tired, the, the hurting, the hungry, the people who recognize that they are nothing and they're lost and undone and they need an answer and we have the answer. His name is Jesus. Let's keep reading. We're going to go all the way to verse 40. So hang with me, okay? Verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. It's a particular life, right? It's the life that we have in Christ. Verse 21, And they heard this. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and all those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, They set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away Some of the people after him, he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan, if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. And charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Pastor, what are you going to do with all that? I don't know. Uh, I just want you to get this one point this morning. We should expect persecution 
from the prideful and the powerful. We should expect persecution from the prideful and the powerful. As the gospel spreads throughout Jerusalem, the temple leaders are filled with jealousy. We have a spirit-filled church facing a jealousy-filled leadership. And once again, they arrest the apostles. Apparently this time, not just Peter and John, but all the apostles. I want us to to take a, a brief detour and understand for a moment why the gospel is so upsetting to so many who are in authority. Why is the gospel so upsetting to so many who are in authority? Here's the answer. The gospel tells us there's a king that they can't see that we must surrender our lives to. The gospel tells us there is life after death and there's an authority who stands over this world to whom we must give an account and to whom we must answer. This means that the Sadducees, who didn't believe in the possibility of the resurrection or of miracles, could no longer control the ambitions and the allegiances of growing numbers of people in the city of Jerusalem. Those who are rescued by the gospel are no longer subject to the fear of the world's prideful and the powerful, whether they be religious leaders misusing religion for their own ends or governing authorities who want to make life all about their control of its citizens' lives. In other words, the gospel is political. What is politics about? It's about achieving power Who has all power? Who has all authority? Who stands over all things? It is Jesus, our King. And it is His will, and it is His kingdom, and it is His commands, which are ultimate in the lives of His people. So when an authority comes and says, you won't preach the gospel anymore, what does Peter say in verse 29? Good luck with that. We've got to obey God rather than man. In verse 18 through 21, the first half of verse 21, we find that putting the apostles in prison couldn't stop them from preaching. An angel of the Lord shows up, which I love because the Sadducees don't believe in angels. And an angel of the Lord shows up and he frees them. And what does he do in verse 20? It's like he recommissions them. He gives them the great commission all over again. Don't forget, I know you're in prison. I know it's been rough. I know it's been hard. And I know you've got every reason in the world to abandon your mission, every earthly reason in the world. But what does the angel say? Go and speak. They threw you in prison because you went and you spoke. They told you not to go and to speak, and I'm telling you, get out of here and go and speak. And what are you supposed to speak? All the words of this life as they stand in the temple. In other words, do exactly what they said not to do when they arrested you the first time in chapter 4, and do it in the very heart of where they think they have power and control and authority. I love this. The angel's command is is continual and it's comprehensive. The the word to go and to speak is, is go and keep on speaking all the words of this life. Don't tell them a little bit about Jesus. 
Don't hand them a gospel track and tell them to pray a prayer and move on to the next person. Tell them all the things pertaining to this life. Make sure they really know who Jesus is in light of the Old Testament so that you can actually know that they have saving faith, not in a Jesus of their own imagination, but in the Jesus revealed in the Bible. Tell them all that they need to know and keep on telling them. And in verse 21a, what do they do? They obey. They arrive in the temple at daybreak when people would come for their morning prayers and they begin to teach and with the implication that they keep on teaching. Meanwhile, in verse 21, the second half through verse 24, so the apostles are out of prison, but the high priest gathers the temple leaders and sends the temple police for the apostles who we know aren't going to be there. And Luke knows that we know that they aren't going to be there, but the high priest doesn't know that they're not going to be there. So he calls together the council in verse 21. It's it's just thick with irony. All right, we're going to have a meeting. We're going to figure out what we're going to do with these apostles. You're going to go down to the prison. You're going to get them. Oops. No apostles. When the police come back, they report their findings. What do they find in verse 23? Secured locks, check. Standing guards, check. Apostles, uh, we got a problem. The best explanation is clearly a miraculous escape. But the Sadducees don't believe in miracles or angels. So in verse 24, we find that they are greatly perplexed, meaning they're startled, they're disturbed, they're they're wondering what this would come to, which is a, a way in the Greek of expressing wishful thinking. Well, maybe we're still gonna be okay, even though there were locks and guards and no apostles, maybe it's going to be all right. Pride is an incredible thing, isn't it? They're still hoping to maintain their power. You know, the same thing still happens to this day. Despite abundant evidence of an empty tomb and a risen Savior, a Savior who has changed this man's life and many of you you've had your lives changed by the gospel you've been set free from the power of sin you recognize that apart from Christ you could do nothing but in Christ all things are possible he's changed your orientation and your attitude he's given you life and appetites and desires and affections for God you were on a one-way road to hell and God intercepted your life and he changed you and people have seen that in your life but there are still some prideful and powerful who keep on opposing King Jesus and his people. We live in a time of growing hostility to gospel ministry in our world. D.A. Carson says this, more people, I want you to If you don't get anything else this morning, I want you to take this down. I I was shocked when I read this statistic, this fact, this, this week in preparation. More people have been martyred for following Christ in the last century than in all of the first 1900 years of the church's history combined. He's coming back, y'all. I don't know when he's coming back, but it's, it's intensifying. The sooner that we understand it is impossible to faith, faithfully represent the gospel without offending people, the better. You're going to offend some people if you share the gospel. 
Not because you want to be offensive, not because you want to be unkind, but because the gospel is offensive to our pride. You can't get to heaven, you can't come to Jesus unless you recognize you need him desperately and that your sin separates you from a holy God. It offends our pride and when it does offend our pride, we should reconsider what we think of ourselves and we should repent and turn to God. But what do the temple leaders do despite all the evidence? To the contrary, they refuse to follow Jesus as king. In verse 25, the the wishful thinking of the temple leaders is dashed as an unnamed someone runs into the meeting and reports that the apostles are not sitting in the prison where they should be, but they're standing in the temple teaching as they were commanded not to do. So what do they do? They arrest them again. Third time the apostles have been arrested in two chapters. And apparently, they have a show of force, but they don't use the force because they're afraid of the people. It's not that they don't want to beat them up because they do beat them up in chapter 40 in secret. But in front of the people, they they want to treat the apostles kind of kind because the people are right now, they're paying attention to the apostles. They kind of like the apostles. So they wait till they're out of sight to beat the apostles up. Now you might think, well, that's great, they're popular with the people, but we've got to understand, church, if we keep reading the book of Acts, we won't always be popular with the people. You get to chapter 7, and what happens? Stephen is stoned. So it's kind of a warning. The, the people are fickle. You remember what happened to Jesus on Holy Week? He walks in, Hosanna, Hosanna! And a week later, he's crucified by the same people. We can't trust in the popularity that we may or may not have with the people. We've just got to be faithful to keep on loving in Jesus' name, proclaiming the gospel no matter who it offends, and leave the results to God. Verse 27 through 32, we see a a trial, much like the trial that we already read about in chapter 4. In in chapter 4, verse 18, the, the council had warned Peter and John not to speak or to teach in Jesus' name. And what did they do? They spoke and taught in Jesus' name. In verse 28, these spirit-filled apostles, do you see it? They filled Jerusalem with their teaching. So the spirit-filled apostles are resisted by a jealousy-filled temple leadership because they're filling the whole city with the preaching of the gospel. God help us to fill the Roanoke Valley with the preaching of the gospel. But it wasn't just their teaching that bothered the temple leaders. They were also angry because the apostles were making them look bad. And how are they making them look bad? You crucified Jesus. You can't really preach the gospel without preaching that Jesus was crucified. And you can't preach the gospel without the crucifixion. Well, why was he crucified? Because he had to pay for our sin. So in a sense, we're all like the temple leaders. He he had to die to redeem us. and, And he kept accusing them in their view, of bringing his blood, Jesus' view, upon them. And I I love what Peter says in verse 29 and 30. Again, he says, we've got to obey God rather than man. But then in verse 30, he adds this. Okay, remember, they're mad because Peter is saying, you killed Jesus. And what does he say in verse 30? You killed Jesus. Now, he's on trial. They've got him arrested. Not long ago, they killed Jesus. You might think Peter would try to sort of back out of it a little bit. Well, I didn't really mean to be that harsh. 
And he's like, well, you did. You killed him. Peter will not not share the gospel. No matter what threat there is to his life. As Christians, church, we've got to recognize that government is established by God and we should respect our governing officials. In 1 Peter 2, 17, Peter says, Fear God and honor the emperor. But right here, Peter is showing us that we are not honoring the authorities if we obey a command that forbids what God requires or sanctions what God forbids. If we are commanded to not share the gospel, or if we are commanded to start living or affirming or speaking or celebrating things that are contrary to our biblical convictions, we are on solid ground to disobey. Indeed, we must disobey. So let's make it real for a moment. Church, we cannot, no matter what our culture and our society says, we cannot lie to people about their identity regardless about, of what they say about their preference. Did y'all track with me on that? You can't do it. You can't do that and be a faithful believer. To do so is not loving, it is lying. Because you know the truth. Neither can we let a quarantine and isolation hang over us indefinitely as a reason to not participate in the mission of God and get the gospel out. When are we going to get back to sharing the gospel with people? What's it going to take? We've got to be six feet away from people at Kroger. I can't see anything but their eyes. Don't get me wrong. We need to be wise. There's a very real threat in our midst. But the Great Commission has not been suspended. People are dying and going to hell every day. There's something worse than getting a disease that kills you. It's never being rid of the disease of sin and being saved and rescued by Christ. And I don't have all the answers about where that balance is, but I, I fear that we're, what's settling into our souls is a fear that is ungodly and unchristlike. When, when are we going to share the gospel again? There's something far worse than having your life cut short by COVID. It's spending an eternity separated from the love of God in a place called hell. We've got to get back to sharing the gospel. The apostles don't just practice civil disobedience, they also declare the gospel. Though the temple leadership had killed Jesus by hanging Him on a tree, the God of their fathers had raised Jesus and exalted Him as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. These supposed leaders of Israel are fighting against the very salvation that their fathers had told them to seek. They, remind, they remain blinded by jealousy and pride. 
And they're unwilling to see what should be plain in front of their faces. The Old Testament tells us that a man who is hung on a tree is cursed by God, Deuteronomy 21, 23. And what they refuse to see is that Jesus became sin to bear God's curse against sinners, not because Jesus was bad, but because they were bad. Not because Jesus had sinned, but he died to bear the sin of sinners. He became sin so that the price of sin, death, could be paid and that repentance and forgiveness could be given to Israel, to those who bow to Jesus as leader and trust in him, the one who has died and been raised and now rules. Do you see in verse 31 that Jesus is leader and savior? You see that? I want to make sure you see that this morning. You can't have Jesus for savior and not follow him as king. There was a whole movement back in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s that tried to separate the lordship of Jesus from the salvation of Jesus. You can't separate them. Jesus is Lord and He is Savior. Why did we need a Savior? Because we rejected God as King. We would have no need of saving if we had always followed God as King. So to think that you can have Jesus as your Savior and not be rescued from your rebellion against God is foolishness. Saved people follow King Jesus because He saved them from their failure to follow God as King. Is that making sense? It's not praying a prayer, walking an aisle, checking a box, getting wet, getting confirmed. It is having a life change brought about by the Spirit of God on the inside such that you repent, which means to turn around from the way you were going and to turn wholeheartedly to God. And when you fail, when you falter, the Spirit of God convicts you, you confess, and you get right back to following after King Jesus. Where there is not repentance, there is not saving faith in Jesus. In verse 32, the apostles add this, we are witnesses to these things. They can't deny what they've seen and heard. And then they add this, it's my paraphrase, look, the Holy Spirit of God is a witness too. Look, you can see the evidence of His work in us and in this community. Why wouldn't you repent? Please repent. But to repent, get this, the temple leaders were going to have to accept that the apostles were right. And they would have to admit their need for the Holy Spirit of God to give them power to obey. But sadly, they're not convinced. Instead, they're ready to kill the apostles in verse 33. And then in verse 34, we are introduced to Gamaliel, a Pharisee and a teacher of the law who's popular with the people. We'll learn later that Paul studied under him. And he leads the council to move outside. Or, or to move the apostles outside of the council. In other words, they, they convene an executive session. And he urges the council to, to look out, to take care, to pay attention to what they're about to do. By killing the apostles, they would be risking the goodwill of the people. But for what reason? Why would they do that? In verse 36 and 37, he, he reminds them of two historic uprisings that ended up amounting to nothing. He says, Thutis wanted to be somebody, but his, his movement ended up being nothing. Uh, sidebar here, pastorally, did you know we serve 
somebody who is everything, who became as nothing so that you could have his everything. He's just the exact opposite. And in verse 38, Gamaliel extrapolates from these examples. He's like, look, we've had political movements in the past. We'll have political movements in the future. They rise and they fall and they amount to nothing. So why would you worry about this guy anyway? If, if this is of man, and we all agree it probably is, it's going to fail. And if it's of God, you won't be able to stop it anyway. And you might even be found to be fighting God. Newsflash. There's a little bit of irony here. Luke is like, he's, he's right, but he's also wrong. He, he's right in the sense that they are going to end up found fighting God. But it's not that they're going to be found later to be fighting God. They're fighting God right in this moment. Christianity is not just another movement among many movements. Christianity is the only movement that will matter for all eternity. The truth of the gospel, the truth of Christianity, is not secured by the size of the movement. Yes, the church is growing at the time, but sometimes the church is persecuted and it contracts. The truth of the movement has nothing to do with whether we have 35 people or 35,000 people gathered here to hear the gospel. The truth of the movement is Christ has risen from the grave. He's ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father. And He's giving repentance to those who turn and believe. And what does Gamaliel say? Well, let's just wait and see. Sounds like really good advice. Practical wisdom. Did you know that waiting to see how things turn out when it comes to Jesus is the worst advice you could give? Gamaliel's trying to be the voice of moderation in a t context that calls for absolutes. Y you can't go halfway with Jesus. you got to go all in. The council takes his advice. They call in the apostles and they flog them, they beat them, and they command them not to speak in Jesus' name, and they let them go. Church, here's what I want you to know. Make no mistake about it. If you refuse to be silenced about your risen and exalted king, you will face opposition. You might lose your job. We will be discounted as crazies, and we will perhaps even be arrested and beaten and killed. But I have good news. Even when it's tough, there is great joy in serving our risen King. Look at verse 41 and 42. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. He's come. The last thing I want to share with you this morning is we've got to let opposition fuel our joy and our witness. We've got to let opposition fuel our joy and our witness. You say, Daniel, this is crazy. It is crazy. The apostles were just beaten. And they leave the presence, as they leave the presence of the council, they do not leave the presence of Christ. Let, let me say that again. Do you see that in verse 41? 
They left the presence of the council, but they did not leave the presence of Jesus. The one who suffered and died for them is just as he promised. He is with them and he is with his church to the end of the age. So how do they respond to the persecution? They rejoice and they keep on rejoicing. They are beaten, but they're not broken. They've been flogged, but their lips are filled with praise. Why? Because God counted them worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Not that they were counted worthy to have an easy life, not that they were counted worthy to have lots of money or status or fame, but they were worthy to be counted, they were counted worthy of suffering dishonor for the name of Jesus. Facing opposition to the gospel church does not mean we're failing. It means we're fighting against the forces of darkness in Jesus' name. When we face opposition, it means that God is allowing you the honor of participating in the sufferings of Christ that He will use to lead to the salvation of many who embrace Him and to the just judgment of those who refuse Him. It means that God has allowed us the great joy of experiencing something of what Jesus did for us so that we might all the more live not for our name, but for His. When you know that you are suffering for the sake of the King, God gives you a supernatural strength and an eternal perspective that will allow us to see that being dishonored now for Jesus will be a great honor in eternity. Church, it's not the opinion of our culture, but the opinion of our Creator that motivates the church. When we suffer For the sake of the gospel, we have no doubt that we are fulfilling our calling because Paul says in Philippians 1.29, it's been given to you to suffer on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in Him, but to suffer for Him. Peter echoes the same thing in 1 Peter 4.13, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. As only God can. He turns this persecution into praise in verse 41. And in verse 42, what does he do? He turns it into more gospel proclamation. He uses opposition not to take us out, but to fuel our joy, confirming that we are laboring and fighting for the sake of our King. And so every day, what do they do? They take the gospel public In the temple where the people gathered, they proclaimed in the name of Jesus. Then they went house to house and they kept on teaching and preaching. This word preaching is the word in Greek, euangelizomai. It's the word, the Greek word for evangelism. Did you know evangelism isn't just the job of the apostles and the preacher? By chapter 8, you're going to see this word used for the whole church. This is the first time we find it in Acts, but now the whole church is going to begin sharing the good news. What's the good news? The Christ is Jesus. The Messiah that you should have been looking for in the Old Testament, He's come and His name is Jesus. Let me ask us, North Roanoke, what does it look like to be faithful with the gospel as a people of God? What do we have to do? Three things. We've got to meet real needs as a platform for sharing the gospel. We've got to expect persecution from the prideful and the powerful. And we must let that persecution fuel our passion to proclaim Jesus all the more. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, thank you 
for your word. You tell us that your word is truth and that you set us apart by it. You set us apart for God, for his purposes, for his plan, for the joy that is found only in him, for the, for the community that comes in a, an incredible, supernatural, special way to those who've been redeemed and rescued by the blood of Christ. And God, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, who does not have that joy of the fellowship of Christ through the repentance of their sins and trusting in Christ, I pray, God, today you would bring them to saving faith. And for those, God, who do know you, and maybe they're looking for a church family that wants to make you known by meeting needs and proclaiming the gospel, that, that wants to allow, allow the, the opposition of the world to fuel our joy and our praise and our proclamation even more. God, I pray that they would feel the liberty to, to join forces with us in proclaiming the name of Jesus, both in the Roanoke Valley and to the ends of the earth. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke Podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.